Demetrius, do you think what Jason Shaw and Fedor Gors play this exact style? What do we think? Okay, so this is like the top, one of the toughest matchups I've ever heard because I have a I think I'm gonna make a pick, but here's the thing. Shaw has got the better of Fedor before. He beat him in the finals of Turning Stone last January. Uh and and so He's beat Fedor at some big spots. He just won the International Open, uh, you know, right? And I'm, I'm not mixing things yeah. up, right? He just won the International Open. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I, I just think that – so, and Jason has – he has a break where when he gets his – it's like a positive energy where he gets the balls to open up and cooperate with him in ways. His firepower, if there's one guy that can match, you know, seven minutes, I mean, obviously Shock and really – control the table. And if you want to talk about a guy with a big gear, I think that's the only way to beat Fedor, right? Is have such a big gear that you could put up fives and sixes and just keep the guy in his chair and, and just outrun the guy. You just got to outrace him. And if anybody could do it, honestly, if I had to pick somebody in the world to do it, I mean, filler maybe, but then the Shaw is a good choice. And the other thing about Shaw that I like is he's had a lot of experience in these big sets. Uh, he's played a lot of long sets and he's also, uh, and he's earned it. He's learned to move better. He's learned to manage himself so that he can manage that all out offense with some, with some, you know, patience and the right shot selections at times. Uh, and, and uh, I think that after that, what tragic thing that happened with uh, where he had to kind of like play out that set with Dennis and we ended up losing that set to Dennis. I feel like, I feel like Jason is really hungry to show that he can play and beat anybody. Um, you know, I, I just think Jason is a, he's a great pick to put in the box. That all being said, nobody's actually beat Fedor yet. So it's like, I'm kind of of the ilk where if you see a guy that's undefeated, 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 beating everybody, beating everybody, beating everybody, you keep betting on him until they show you different. So in the end, I kind of still think Fedor is going to find a way, but I, I think this was a really, really, if you had to pick a challenger, man, I think this is going to be a close one. And I, I do believe this one could go either way. Yeah, I think, uh, well, right. What do you think? Um, part of me wants to say no comment, but, um, I think, um, <laughs> you gotta have a comment. It's a podcast. Yeah. I think, um, I think, I think Jason has, um, um, he lives and dies on the emotional edge that he can create for himself. Uh, and I think, uh, that's a good thing for him if he's squared away and right. But I think he's also the, of the two players, the one who's, uh, emotionally more, more likely to, to dive in case things go wrong. I don't think you'll ever see that really from <clears throat> from Feder. I think Jason may be literally a robot. Right, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, when you're talking about a, a basically a game of numbers like longer set, you know what I mean, you have to you know, you have to outshoot the robot and keep him in in the chair. Jason obviously has incredible firepower and ability, but if you watch some of the especially the beginning part of the Shane match, there was a lot of like mental kind of like uh, un like discomfort from both players and they both missed a ton of balls you know at the beginning it did not look good at all like and if jason comes out with any kind of that pressure because he's focused on trying to like justify himself or like prove that he's as good then fader's going to eat his lunch especially in the early part of the set and now you're trying to mm -hmm. chase down the robot you know and if you're trying to chase down the robot the robot's going to miss one ball every seven racks or 12 racks or whatever and you got to do better than that but you're starting by giving him an eight game advantage that's mm. death, you know, that's <laughs> death. You're, you're just, you're, you're playing a losing game. So if, if, if Jason doesn't get caught up in the, cause he's very on social media a lot and you know what I mean? He likes to engage people and he likes to engage the crowd. I think that's fun and everything, but that also makes him vulnerable. Um, if somebody happens to say something that, you know, picks the wrong nerve and now he like, you know, just has like a, a shaky start, you know, he has to come out of the gate strong and be locked in from the beginning 
otherwise I think he's losing like to Demetrius's point, like Fetters Fetters the, the champ right now. And until somebody beats him, nobody's got, no nobody can beat him until somebody does. You know what I mean? Jason's capable of that, but he kind of has to prove that. So whether how he approaches that mentally it will be interesting. And how he comes out of the gate will be interesting because Shane missed a lot of balls against him for whatever reason, whether he was tired or disinterested or whatever, who knows, but you know, Federer's not going to do that. So how Jason comes out, how he handles the game from the beginning, I think will be telling and it's going to set the tone for the way this match shakes out. I kind of like Federer's end of it because he's just, He's very sharp right now, and he's in his he's in his rhythm right now, and he's not the one having to prove anything. He could lose the match, and everybody's going to say he's still the best player in the world. Jason, I think that means more to him than it does to Feta right now, and that is valuable until it's not, you know. Mm. So, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I was, I was thinking back when you Demetrius when you said uh, nobody's ever beat Fedor. I'm like, that's not. Wait. What? I don't think he has ever lost a cash game. I don't know. I don't know what to say, man. I mean, it took. Well, I mean, it took. It took a Ukrainian invasion to stop the guy. It literally took Armageddon. I mean, it took Putin. It took Putin to bring down. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it, it took. An, it, it took an international alliance or lack of. You know, I, I don't understand yeah. that. It's going to take something more than just a, a good pool player. <laughs> yeah. uh, they're gonna I have to send yeah, a t1000 or something at him that's right know. that's oh, right geez. i think i think fedor is the two wheel thousand i think i think he's chips is and circuits he, and... is he the t1000 or is he the the other one you know the liquid kind of surface yeah yeah that's right that yeah i think so who knows Magneto. yeah i mean he's playing he's Magneto. playing great and and i think there, there's two guys like i really like fedor's game i like yaps game a lot both of them kind of like make things as easy as possible like you don't really see them doing too too many things that are just like out of left field or big crazy shots to come with and recover from stuff every so often you'll see them come with a nice shot but the majority of stuff is very clean very polished very simple and um it's tough to fade man when somebody's never out of line and they just pocket the ball and everything looks really see like easy and simple it's like buddy hall you the know, jail chain is that way too yeah yeah when, and it's just like slow death you know you're just sitting there just being suffocated by this guy who just his cue ball is always perfect and he happens to come with you know the tough shot every now and again it's right uh, you know what so raymond you're absolutely what i think about what you're saying about shaw versus the bot it's like you're right you know the old school mentality was get loose get aggressive you know, go ahead, you know, it's okay to make a few mistakes, kind of stay loose and catch your gear. And then once you catch your gear, doesn't matter if you're down a little bit or how things are going, you'll just catch this big gear and then overpower the other guy later. But right. it's really, really hard to do that when you're playing against a guy that's always in gear. The only thing is, is that I've seen it where, like when you talk about Yap, I think about Yap versus Beato at last year's US Open, where it looked like Yap was just a machine. And Beato was the one trying to catch a gear and trying to like kind of get some energy and get some rhythm and get some you know thing going because it looked like Yap was the one that had the game solved and Beato was the one trying to like catch his get rhythm and so it looks like well how is that ever going to win but then you see a couple big moments where you know Beato did catch his rhythm and then that machine sputters once in a while and it looks like oh why did it sputter there but everybody feels the mental pressure and and, and Fedor does have a you know at the time Yap had a lesser experience and, and Beato was able to catch a gear and catch him. Fedor, despite his his un, you know undisputable uh, resume and, and talent, 
you know, it's possible that 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 if he, you know, if he gets a little lead, if if Shaw does catch a gear and start putting big packages and hits him with a four and then a six and then a four and ha ha ha, you know, Federer could sputter or and it, and let him back in. And even if he doesn't, Shaw could catch such a big gear he just comes back just through denying him opportunity. So I I do think there's a I, I tend to like uh, JL Chang and, and Yap and Fedor type players myself because that's more of my ilk. However, so I tend to have a little bias towards preferring the, those guys, but it's undeniable that there's he's live, man. He's definitely live. No, for sure. And I think I think like experience plays a big part of that. So I think Yap was probably like a little young, you know what I mean? As far as like, oh, this is a big moment. This might be one of my first like, you know, there's a difference moments. between Yap and Fedor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, at least Yap at that point because yap now you know has gotten more comfortable you know oh, yeah. playing in those events and he's you know i think there was like a month where he didn't lose a match didn't nate didn't you say like there was like yeah. a, a month where he didn't lose a match yeah, in a he, tournament and so he won, he, just uh, went, he won the michigan open so he won like a little some little regional event and then he won the right. michigan open and then he won the um the uh, sandcastle open and he yeah. never lost a match in any of those so we went like a, yeah, yeah. a full calendar month without losing a match <laughs> wow. so gross so he's like you know he's coming up but fetter's like in the grease right now you know he's in that he's in that box he's in that so i mean jason has a, an incredible amount of experience and he'll be coming off of the moscone cup likely whatever happens there you know what i mean so i mean he's a juggernaut he's a champ so it'll be a fun a fun one to watch for sure yeah I, I think uh, as far as the Jason, I, as far as the Jason and Fedor match, I believe it looked like, according to Facebook, uh, that they're going to be playing at Jason's room first, and then maybe a second round somewhere else. Correct. Uh, that I would guess that that's only the case if Jason wins at his home place. I I can't imagine. I mean, Bill I think they. I think they. A, no, I think they. They said that they're posting two sets, fifty k a set. Most? Yeah. Okay. Sure. So two sets, fifty okay, k. Sure, maybe that's true. What if so, Fedor showed up at the Boscoli Cup and rooted for USA, wore a big USA jersey? He, he could just show up. He didn't have. He, he just be like, there's ambiguous, you know. Just sits there, like sits his tea. And, just, you know, yeah, doesn't doesn't flush. Just sits wait, there like this nothing, the whole just time. Sits there, just right here, at him. Yeah. An American Eagle costume, the stars and stripes shirt on. Yeah, oh, the Cue big old American shirt. Eagle, American Europe, Eagle costume. Europe's gonna hear it. I promise you. I'm on the uh, <laughs> I'm on the executive committee of American chanting and. Uh, we have something for him. David Al Qaeda makes a first mistake. No, don't don't Fedor, you worry. Don't you? Fedor I don't want to give away out. anything. I don't want I don't want to give away anything. No, no. Let them let let them feel the full suffer when 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 they bobble that first ball. <laughs> Fedor, Fedor, yeah. great. Okay, so should straight. we talk about Fedor, should we talk Fedor, about Bergman? Yeah, we should. Yeah, let's switch over. All right, so uh, Bergman runs a 19 pack on a bar table with a template. What do we? Think? Yeah, I mean, are we surprised? I guess, like, no. Well, you know, I I know that. I mean, I mean, the I, number is exciting. I, it's like, wow, he ran yeah, nineteen. Yeah. But like, I I can take this on first, I guess, because I'll I'll shoot well, myself think... right in the face, and then you guys can all like, uh, you know, just, any one of you guys can run nineteen on a bar table. Well, I no. mean, it's just after the so everybody yeah. has always said that Bergman is probably like the second best American or the best American after the break, right? So probably. His cue ball is just tremendous, and he, you know, okay. So you put him on a bar table with a, the wing ball is going to go every single time, and he's breaking Probably his playing cue. Yeah, he's just going to get shape every time, and now he can just flex his cue ball. So, well, I would great, say, I would say, great this. player. Do I think it's impressive? Um, I mean, it's impressive that you could do it 19 times. It just like seven fourteen. I mean, 
714, well, this is not the same as that, but like that's incredible. It's almost impressive to see that many shots in a row where something that can go wrong, a skid, a, you know, a kick, something like that could go wrong, a scratch, something like that. And it just doesn't for 714 shots in a row. It's, it's impressive right. to see that 19 times in a row uh, something could go wrong and just never did. As, as far as do I think, I don't think it's, I don't think it's like out of the, the ordinary. I mean, I would have to see the table that they're playing on, but do you know anything about those at four and a quarter inch pockets? Uh, so no, I, I'm not I, sure. I just know it's a bar I mean, table. unless it's four inch pockets, I just don't see how it's all that impressive for a player of his caliber. The template, you're guaranteed probably two balls down on the break. And, you know, as long as you're controlling that one ball, which I'm, you don't have to hit it hard if you're, if you're guaranteed a ball or two. Justin Bergman's cue ball so good. Like, I've broken ran nine with the template before on a bar table. Justin Bergman's he's, a gangster. I mean, he's, he's a, like, he's, he's a gangster. Oh, no, I'm not, saying, like, I'm not I'm saying, like, I'm saying, I think he can do more. Like, like, like the kid is nice and he's playing for Doe. I mean, I think the overall scoreline was ridiculous. What was he? He had to get a game. He was like 50 to three. He, he spotted three. 25 okay. games and the guy didn't get to 30. Have a nice day. Uh, yeah, come I mean, back again. What, Go what I'm saying is like, he played a race to 50 only and he ran 19. Like, yeah, I, I, I bet if he just sat down and like, if he just sat down for three days, and just did this over and over and over again, like he was trying to run seven fourteen. It wouldn't surprise me a bit if he ran thirty five. Right. All right. So I've got to jump in here. So that there's there's let's just break this down into the, this feed down into two parts. Coming up with shots on the one with an open rack that's reasonably runnable, and then converting and running out the open balls. Okay. What what makes nine ball runs difficult. Like when I think about like the old days, you know what, like Earl's, you know, 11 racks, which even that involved like a handful of nine ball breaks and early combos. But like, when you think about these big packages that are being run in the eighties and nineties, when I was growing up, people used a hard break. Sometimes they'd lose their cue ball. Sometimes there'd be clusters. A lot of time they'd be hooked and they, their run would just end. And then sometimes they'd have to come with shots on the one, the combos and banks and long, hard shots and you know, dealing with problems. There was the amount, the difficulty of getting a shot, making it and getting control of the table and earning a runnable opportunity. You were, it was very, very difficult. Now that we've gone to newer cloth and template racks and everything floats apart and you're guaranteed a ball to break and you can soft break. I mean, I, I think it's no longer, there's, there's just, you know, you talk about, well, you know, the odds of something bad not happening at some point, like getting kissed in or scratching at the, at, with the template rack with the one on the spot and no minimum break speed rules. You can shoot a stop shot on the one, make the wing ball, play shape for the one in the corner on the top corner, and, right. and you can play it at such a soft speed, you can't even get hooked because nothing's moving fast enough to hook you. So, like, if anybody hasn't seen this break, look up the U.S. Bar Table Championships. Look up nine ball. I remember I was there in 2017. Uh, I was breaking soft. Jesse, my buddy, was breaking soft. Everybody's breaking soft. And we all had that break figured out. And it's like you can get control of the table, not every time, but if you strike the balls reasonably – you can you can basically make yeah a ball on the break float everything open and get a shot on the one almost every time and then you factor in that you're on a bar table and you've got eight right. open balls and everything spread out evenly without clusters because it's a template it's like it, it, so it's like what, what are you if you're betting that Justin if you're betting on somebody not running twenty racks it's like are you betting which of these things are you betting on are you thinking that when they crack this thing open like an eggshell and the one's floating there and the cue ball stops are you thinking he's not going to get a shot on that ball when there's nothing else moving around. Or are you betting that he's going to miss a ball with seven open balls on a bar table? Like, which one are you betting on happening? Because it, I just think that it's, I am not, I, I'm not minimizing his accomplishment. I'm not minimizing, I am minimizing his accomplishment. I'm not minimizing Justin Bergman. But I think that 
I think that bar table nine ball with the one on the spot with the template rack is such a watered down game that it, it should be played by amateurs only because anybody at the higher levels, it's, it's absurd. They're going to break the game. Opinion. Yeah. They're going to break the game, you know, and what even did like we see in the, in when sky played to 150 on that bar table in, in that breaking, match that was last hard. year, I think. Right. I mean, how many rats was the most hard. that was run in that match? I think it was seven, right? Yeah, I think so. But yeah, ten ball, like ten ball, and nine ball are two player? completely different games. Ten ball on a right. bar table, you're not guaranteed a ball. Yeah, no, no. I mean, right. the, the highest players are probably going to be making on I average agree with that. one They're and a half to two, two and a quarter, something like that. But you're not guaranteed a ball with the bar with the the nine ball template. You are guaranteed that wing ball. I mean, unless there's something weird going right. on, you miss hit it. You know, you, you yeah. They're never going to do that. How, really. how bad do you have to miss hit the to rack yeah, to you not make you, the wing you, ball? Yeah, I mean, you got to hit a bad. Yeah. So, no, and I, I mean they're they're gonna crack the game. That's how you know it's very subject to that. I mean I've I've played on on valley bar tables with the triangle, you know, out in Vegas and run six and seven on people, and they you know, and I I I know how to rack the balls well, and I can play like a like a little bit firmer break, but I'm playing the one to come two cushions over the corner, and I have to hit them that speed because the balls aren't all the same size, so it's not even like as nice of conditions as like what Bergman's <laughs> doing. You know what I mean? So I'm like. Yeah. I'm like, maybe, maybe I get a little bit of a weird gap, but I'm probably going to make another ball, slot one in, and then I can get the one where I want it and then I can run out. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, somebody, his skill level, like a 19 is, is probably something he can do pretty regularly, to be honest. You know what I mean? If he, he if, if he were to do that every day for a month, he, he could probably break 30. You know what I mean? That's, so, that's kind of where I'm at on it. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like with the template and the clean balls and everything, like it becomes so predictable. So it's not repeatable. To denigrate what he did. It's to show no. that we actually have so much more respect for his game. Oh what man. No, for it. sure. I think it's like impressive the, too. Like the amount of pressure you put somebody in those conditions, you would think, well, I mean a 670 or seven, whatever the guy's Fargo was, you'd think he could run a four or five, you know what I mean? But the fact that he kept them to only three games, I think that's more impressive, really, than oh yeah, than just the nineteen. You know, the nineteen is strong, but I mean, to keep the guy to three games, that's gross. And uh, you know, you know what would be funny is after the that set, if Justin Bergman, what if what if you after the set, Justin Bergman set up the six ball he missed to let the guy to three and started practicing that shot? That'd be pretty yeah, cool right, one. right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like man, I can't yeah. believe I got him. Yeah, that was terrible. <laughs> Well, let me go practice his ball for about an hour. Yeah, yeah. I think that'd be. I think that'd still be less disrespectful than uh, him walking up with a quarter ready to flip it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you want forty this time? <laughs> no, rough. Oh, yeah. What, what? What's the adjusted Fargo rate? You know, match match handicap. Now that I beat you by, you know, however many racks. But it's good to see him playing. I think a lot of people have been looking for and asking about where's Bergman, where's Bergman, where's Bergman, and to see him kind of come up and just play really high level is encouraging for a lot of fans i think it'll be nice to see him next year kind of come out and and be hopefully active on the tournament scene or, or that'd be nice i think he posted be, something too like he, well he just posted too uh that he wants to play Copenhagen if Copenhagen wants to swing by st louis and play him a set um at the players room so he posted something about that as well so he's he's i think he's ready to get back in there and get in the mix so I guess we'll, in, in short in short order, get to see him, you know, competing against the top guys, which is really what we all want to see because he's such a talent, you know, especially for the American guys, since we have you, a lot of guys coming up. There's there's like nobody in the world that would want to go play him there though. Why why would you want to go to someone's home pool room to play on their home pool table to play by those rules to to get action? Money. 
Yeah, pride. Yeah, but I mean, it's wow. got to be worth it for you, right? To get up there and go play. If he that, doesn't want to travel for whatever some reason, just like, do it because they just want to beat him. Yeah, yeah. As, as long as the like he's off the, the scene. I mean, the, the pool room's does not the scalp like, of Justin Bergman right now look nice. Huh? He's been off the scene for over over a full calendar year. I mean, is a, is beating Justin Bergman worth it to to have that pride? Well, now you would think because he's off he's been off that that calendar year, and those guys have been in the grease. Now is the time to try and play him if he's asking for action. Like now is when you want to play him. You don't want to wait six months and let him get get hard. You know what I mean? Get really seasoned, super tight. Like if you're gonna if if they're offering to play for fifty k and you want to make some money, like now is the time to play him. If you wait six sure. months and then, you know, because, oh, now he's back playing, like, it might be too late for you. <laughs> he, might, he might beat you then. So I just I just think when, when Justin Bergman and I love Justin, uh, but there's there's some things that are kind of strange. Like when people were I saw an IZ billiards like, oh, he ran this 19 back. He should play Fedor. And I'm like, man, it's, it's just some, yeah, some really disconnected that. state. But but I think about the match where Donnie Mills played Shane. Right like what 14 15 years ago i was actually i got a ride i, I shared a uh donnie had a rental car so i rode with him from the to the u.s open venue from uh from the, from the airport and we were talking about that and donnie was kind of like he felt that he should never have played that match against shane because he felt like he made some breaking secrets and racking secrets like not just well, he should he shouldn't have played him he, yeah he should not have played him on tar he yeah he said that he made it too visible and it changed the way that people were racking and breaking after that it's kind of you know, made an impact in the, in the you know, anyway, I, I don't disagree with them. But anyway, the point is this, I think about that match. Like, does anybody think what Donnie was betting, was anybody thinking that Donnie was going to like outplay Shane? The only question was, was this, was this advantage of rack your own on his home table in his home spot with the things tapped? And was that enough of a gaff to overcome the skill difference? And I feel like with Justin Bergman, I love Justin and I love his game and I, I'm a big fan. I'm not taking away, but when we're talking about coping Yi and we're talking about Fedor, we're talking about these giants, you just got to ask, like, you can't, you know, there's a reason, like, I don't see, you know, Justin playing these guys, you know, on neutral territory. So when he's saying you can come to my home pool room, like home room advantage, there's obviously has to be enough value there to where he feel that, feels that that's going to make him the favorite. And so to me, I don't, I don't really love matchups like this because I'd like to see neutral territory, see in neutral territory with reasonable rules where one guy's not going to have a gaff and just get to control the break and have the same layout 20 times in a row. I'd like to see who could play better. And when it's a matter of come on this table and play with these rules and then we'll play, then to me it's not about who can play better. It's about how much don't you know about the trap that I'm setting for you. And I just feel like that's a different game. <laughs> yeah, and I guess to, to address Sean's to, to address Sean's comment there, like, no one's questioning whether or not uh, Justin can play on anything, whether it's big table, bar table, 10 foot table, anything. And nobody's questioning that, but to say that like he can, he has unlimited amounts of money that he can just like cash in on in St. Louis. And that's why he doesn't travel. I mean, spare me with that. I mean, that, that, that's not a reason. Like if, if your entire career, your entire way of life, you've spent your entire career becoming one of the greatest players in the entire world. And now you're going to cash in on becoming one of the best players in the world by never leaving your hometown. That's, that's not that's not why he's in that's not why he's there there's no way why would you spend why would you dedicate your entire life to becoming one of the best players in the world to to, to be the best player in your town like n nobody thinks that way you're 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 about, you're about like becoming the best player in the world right well, the only way you can be the best player in the world is by getting out there and testing those skills against other players i just there's there's just no way i i i guess let, let's put it this way Demetrius, if you're going to say um who is the player that goes in there and 
race to 100, uh, the U.S. Open rules against Justin Bergman. Who's the player that you look at that going into there, and it's Hill Hill by the end of it, and they're playing one game. Who's who's basically dead even? Do you think to play Justin Bergman right now? Basically, the dead. question is how do you how do you gauge his game on a neutral oh, side? Boy, I mean, I I would assume it's not Fedor Gorst, and I don't think yeah. it's you. No, no, I I mean, like. At this point, it's hard because, you know, like uh, like Raymond said, he hasn't really been in a ton of action. You know, at his best, you know, when it comes to gambling matches, maybe you'd say, you know, Clenty Kachi or something. But uh, at right now in the in the moment, you know, a guy like, uh, you know, like Alex Kazakis or David Alcady. Yeah. Ray, Raymond, what do you think? Um, who do I like Bergman against right now? In the who do you think period? is who do you think if if they played a race to hundred, who's who's going to get to ninety nine ninety nine playing one game for the like basically who's who's the like, who's is oh, he? Yeah, who's, yeah, yeah. I think I think those second tier guys like, um, like uh, yeah, like the like the Kazakuses or the Mario Hees or like you know Not those yeah yeah those are all fair matches. You know that if 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 Bergman's playing well, you know. I think the biggest concern for him really is his break. Um, but after the break, he just plays, you know, tremendous and he moves great. He plays one pocket. Like he knows the game. Well, like he's not kind of like a monotone uniform guy, you know what I mean? So he can, he can dance and move with these guys and really play well, you know, Dennis Grabe, you know, those kind of guys, he's, he's gonna, he's gonna give them help, you know, playing, playing a longer set, even, even honestly, a bunch of the Filipinos, um, you know, it used to be, it, it used to be that the Filipinos were the outright standout top tier a one guys, but now I, I think that's not the case. There's, there's a couple of them that play really, really great, but there's, you know, there's, you know, Raga, you know, Raga, who's like, that's the, that's the dude right now, probably, you know? And then there's a bunch of guys like Chua and Aranas and all these guys that are coming up that are younger, but they're not like the dominant status that like Efren and Bustamani had. Right, like Efren and Bustamani were the top of the pecking order for a long, long time. Um, now I think the Taiwanese guys are probably there, and then you have obviously Feder and Filler and a couple other guys that you would say are in that class. But seemingly yeah. every every European think, country has two players. I think yeah. Bergman and Aranis would be a good match. Now, by the way, someone asked what about yeah. FSR. Okay. This is just what I'm talking about. Now, Tiny, love you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. But this is what I'm saying. Like when people talk about like Bergman and FSR or FRS, or sorry, uh, it's like it's like he the guy's like just won the US Open, he won Derby, it's like the player of the year, kind of like on a tear. I mean, if there's like I mean, not the player of the year, but you know what I mean. The guy's winning everything, he's making the finals, he's he might be the player tournaments. of the year. He won yeah, a, he won two Euro tours too. <laughs> now, now, if you were gonna bet, if you were gonna bet on Bergman against Francisco, you'd have to have reason to think that Francisco is so green behind the ears when it comes to gambling that he's just not gonna handle the pressure. He's gonna spew and play eighty percent of his normal game because if if he yeah. does what he's but been doing all year, yeah, I mean Fra Francisco is like tuned into the tournament atmosphere and like he he knows how to win in that space. I saw him get beat a set at the International Open after hours playing against a good player they only played one set it was late but he got beat and that was it you know played a cheap set um wasn't like a big huge you know twenty thousand dollar match or anything but it was you know just cheap practice set and and he got beat you know by a good player um who was but, it uh yep oh so and okay but yep, and so yep, yep, obviously... yep to his credit yep yeah. has, goes around and practices with anybody he'll play anybody hundred dollars yeah. he plays chang he plays fsr yeah. like to, just constantly like yeah i'll play a cheap set if you want to play and um, 
don't let him get control because I watched uh, I watched Aloysius Yap in, uh, at Sandcastle Billiards in New Jersey playing Chang hundred dollar sets. He yeah. beat Chang seven to one on a, a three and uh, it was a three and nine sixteenths inch pockets. So like pro cut is four and a half inch pockets, right? The way that most tournaments are played now are four and a quarter inch pockets. Uh, these were three and nine sixteenths inch pockets, and he beat him seven to one, and he ran a four pack on on a table with pockets this big. <laughs> it's yeah, he's. <laughs> Thank you, Shorty Dancer, for commenting my my podcast voice. I'm gonna have to do like an yeah, OnlyFans. There it is again, o- just like and, I said. And OnlyFans, <laughs> but it's only my voice I talking love about that. pool. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. You got the podcast voice, Raymond. That's right. So I guess. Uh, I mean, yeah, the the Bergman stuff. I think I think James Aranis would be a great match there. That'd be a great match, yeah, for sure. Especially because, I mean, well, Aranis. We is haven't in, seen either one of them in two years, <laughs> right? And Aranis is in the Philippines, so he's you know he's sparring and playing against top level competition, even if it's just there. You know what I mean? There's a couple uh, pages that I've seen pop up that have streamed some of his matches, you know, local tournaments, but it's it's tough, you know, tough action and you know, great players, so. Yeah, T Rex yeah. versus Bergman. I like that too. I was, well, was T Rex destroys up. Bergman. But yeah, I mean, pocket, if Bergman yeah. plays one pocket, but he doesn't play one pocket as good as he plays rotation. Um, right. T Rex is obviously, he just beat Alex in the finals of some one pocket. I mean, 4 0 2. Yeah, I, I'll tell you what, man. And I, I, I've seen I've seen Tony play. He doesn't just have a big offensive gear. He, he can squeeze, he can manage, he can fight for, I mean, he can move, he can fight for opportunities. The guy is, I, I mean, I, whenever he plays Alex, I bet Alex and, I, I think that it's a good bet, but I mean, that, well, that doesn't mean in that in the earlier rounds, he beat him. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So Bergman is an awesome player, but he's not Fedor. He's not Sanchez. He's not T-Rex at one pocket. He's not, and, 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 and playing on his home court, uh, and, 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 you know, is not the same as going out and beating everybody in the world on their on, on neutral territory. Well, currently so, as respectfully as I could possibly say this, he's, I, and I'll just say it. I'll just say it. I mean, he, he's a nobody at this point. He is the best player in his hometown who doesn't travel out to anything. And he's not going to be influential in any sort of real thing until he decides to travel again. Right. I'm not trying to say that as like a rude thing. I'm saying that as like a, he could be the best yeah, player just, in the that's world, the score. but, it, and, and the but guy, it's completely wasted. That's right. right. And you, yeah. Yeah. So, and that's fine, but and, and that's good. I don't blame him. I mean, he's just having fun doing his thing. No problem. But yeah, if, if he's happy with it, that's all that matters. But that's I'll right. tell you what, they're, they're not bringing the U S open to uh, St. Louis. So St. Louis is know, a great town though, by the way, nice town, not arguing it, but they're not bringing the U S open there. And they until arch. they do, or until he starts traveling, I mean, to be honest, we, I wouldn't be US surprised if we, if we see him at Derby, um, I have a feeling that he's on the he's on the the come up to to get back out and competing. So, Derby would be a great a great kind of venue to to kind of pop out and whether it's action or tournaments, or whatever there's whatever you want there. So, I think after this year, after watching, after watching the low prize money qualifications for the top three uh, on the Moscone Cup team for US, and after seeing the wild cards for pick four and five. I've heard a few different players say that they're planning on making a run for 2023. <laughs> so people yeah. feel like this is ridiculous. I'm going to go Nate, for it. We'll get Bergman on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what. Pertinent questions. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, like J- Justin Bergman isn't even a player that has to worry about qualifying. He's in my mind, if he's playing pool, he is just, he is more of a lock for team USA than Shane Van Boning. And I know what I'm saying there, but Justin Bergman has never had the downside that Shane has had in the last X amount of years. 
Like I think Justin Bergman, if he's out there playing, he should be on the team every single year, no matter what. He's he's had great results. Uh, he's, he he's plays well in that guy. format too. Yeah, like he, he's not afraid. Him, I mean, he's before Skyler made the jump that he made, right? Before Skyler like became two time MVP, Justin was playing the best for Team USA. Absolutely, and yeah. was very reliable and solid and great doubles like the the trio. I think it was uh, Skyler. Uh, Skyler, Justin, and I think maybe Billy, or and that one year that Justin Hall made the team. Those three guys were very comparable in ability, and they all held up really well, you know, in that short race format. Um, and they they played good, you know. What I mean, they're strong players, so I think the synergy part of it is is great. He fits in with, you know, I mean, well, Skyler and Justin Bergman had like an open doubles invitation for anybody in the world for a while, and they just never lost you know if only i could find a partner that could you know not let me down right exactly right well i mean those two have a lot of confidence and then skylar i mean skylar jumped up quite a bit and became became the guy you know what i mean um that team usa could could rely to to fill in and kind of anchor it down as um as a solid running mate to shane so yeah, I think Bergman, if he's active and playing, it's hard not to pass him up, even if he doesn't qualify. But the threshold for qualification now for Team USA is so low compared to like Team Europe. <laughs> team Europe, you might be fedder and not make the team. It's a joke, you know. So, so it's like, uh, you know, for Team USA, you just have to win. Really, you just win one event or go deep in like a big event, and you're you're probably going to make the team, you know? Because what was it, ten thousand bucks? Like you made ten thousand dollars at at a ranking event. You make that winning one event, you know. So. For some reason, it never hit me until just now. I know that Fedor didn't make the team, and it, well, they went with Elkady, and I get it. But it just it just didn't hit me that that Fedor, who's maybe playing better pool than has ever been played, and it just based on like the evolution of the game and technology and the conditions, like the guy might be playing tactically speaking, kind of like Vegas Carl said. I'm not saying you know whatever. It's just maybe the best player that's ever struck the balls doesn't make the top five in Europe, and it's like. It's just kind of, kind of that was that was nonsense. That was that was political stuff. Alex Laley said he wanted Feder on the team, and there was basically intervention from the matchroom side. I'm assuming to shy away from that to kind of promote the other guys that were there. But then there's a double standard when you when you pick, you know, both Jason and Earl, you know, weren't you know weren't really doing anything for the for the matchroom ranking events. You know what I mean? So if you're going to pick the matchroom ranking events, but Jason was at them, so I don't think that. that yeah, was... he was at them, but I mean, and granted, he's going to play tremendous at the Moscow. Earl was not at them, so I just don't think it's a. Yeah, so it's so. a double standard to say that that's the reason why. You know what I mean? He's obviously the best player on the planet. Like, if you're uh, an intelligent person, <laughs> you know, picking your your horses, you know, you're going to pick. If you're if you're the if you're the captain, for sure you're gonna pick Fetter. Thousand percent. And Alex Laley think, right. is very high on Fetter. Like he's very like speaks very, very kindly of Fetter's game. So he knows who Fetter is. Like he knows his game. You know, he values one pocket, he values the kicking and the defensive side of stuff. And, you know, that's probably why he went with Al Katie if Fetter was off the table for them, because Al Katie has a good solid kicking and defensive side. And he's also the benefit of being, you know, so close with Francisco. I could um, be wrong on this, but uh, the only the only matchroom ranking event that Earl Strickland went to, he forfeited out of. Yeah, exactly. He was shadow boxing against a, a female fan, I think, in the stands or something. Decided to, yeah. to cut. And cut so he home. forfeited. Out. That might be the only matchroom ranking event that he went to. Maybe he yeah. was at the first Sandcastle Open. Maybe. Uh, no, no, no. He wasn't there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then the only matchroom event that uh, Earl Strickland went to, he forfeited out of. With I finished. and that was the I, video that we all saw that went viral for. 
a half a second and right yeah i mean it is what it is you know but i don't know political for sure and maybe that's all I'll say. maybe this maybe the super billiards expo he was at maybe did earl go to super billiards expo i can't remember yeah, that was such know. a last minute i i didn't go to that either because that kind of got thrown on the calendar late yeah so uh i guess um let's move on from that unless there's anything else anybody has no okay I, so let's move on i have a shout out and this is uh this is a kind of a midwest usa local type of a shout out and it it is in pocket pool so i'm gonna change here a little bit it's three right. cushion billiards and uh the minneapolis uh billiard club had their annual uh championship and it's it's an invitational they can only uh, uh, have 10 people at the tournament. So out of the 25 or so that want to come and play in it, they, they just draw straws to see who comes and plays. And this year, the tournament in Minneapolis was won by Craig Powers. So I want to give a shout out uh, personally to Craig for winning that. Uh, he, he beat uh, players uh, like Freddie Lammers, who is the mid, one of the Midwest premier players. Lupe Cruz uh, from Illinois, one uh, a Midwest premier player, three-cushion player. And uh, uh, Craig came in first, uh, Freddie came in second, and Mike Miller from the Twin Ports, who got me started in three-cushion about five years ago, came in third. Uh, and Lupe came in fourth. So that's, that's the order. And the shout-out also includes uh, uh, Craig being somewhat handicapped. Uh, two years ago, he just about cut his arm off with a chainsaw in his backyard trimming some trees. And he cut his arm from his elbow down to his wrist, uh, basically wide open. And they put him back together. And, and he continued now to play a three cushion after about nine months of rehab and getting back. And he made a little glove that he sticks on his left hand because he has no feeling. His left hand just kind of hangs like this. He has no muscle control. So he lays his hand on the table and he slides this glove over two of his fingers and it has a little U-shaped cup on it. And that's his bridge for playing three cushion. That's awesome. And he just won a tournament with some Midwest champions in it. So uh, Craig, you deserve a, a great big shout out for that. That that's just a that's pretty cool. That was a pretty big, and it's the second time he's won that tournament over there. The other time though, he wasn't was before he had his accident with the chainsaw. So I just I love stories where people are handicapped in some way or other because of something that's happened to them in their life physically. They've had a disease, or they've they've lost an eye, or they you know whatever happens, and then they bring they work through that handicap and they work through that, uh, that hardship and they bring a game, uh, the best game they can. And then they, not only that, they beat players who are, uh, ranked and, and champion players. Uh, so that's a great job, Craig. Yeah. And Mr. Miller two third place. Good for you. Yeah. Uh, so, I guess uh, Sean Santoro's in here, and uh, I think it's interesting to, to talk about. Uh, did you see the doubles that they were talking about? No. 
Sean and Jason Shaw versus uh, Carl and Fedor, Scotch partners for oh, 100000 yeah, yeah. That might be interesting. That would be saucy. Sean, Sean's got a lot of heart, so he might have the biggest heart of anybody in that four pairing. So, Well, Demetrius, would you watch something like that? Probably not. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's hard. To, I'm not. I'm not a very good audience, though. I'm not at all a good representative of the pool demographic. I'm just. I'm kind of eccentric, and I'm in a different spot with the pool. So, if if I'm not watching, that probably means it's good for mainstream. That's my point. Honestly, I think that would be that would be like such a fascinating thing. I would love to watch something like that. Two amateurs, like decent amateurs, good amateurs. I'll tell you, with, you know, the, the, the best of the best in the world playing a scotch doubles for the cheese. That'd be kind of funny to watch. So I'll tell you what I've got. And maybe I've mentioned this on the podcast before. If not, this is like my secret thing. So I've had I've got a list of kind of interesting ideas, like somebody trying to play pool with one of those. Uh, uh, what do you call those vacuums that drive around by themselves? The Zoom. Oh, no. The Roombas. The, the Roomba. Roomba. Yeah, they got to like yeah, the they got like a Roomba moving around the table. They got to play straight pool with the Roomba moving around. But then the, here's here's actually my, my best <laughs> one. Check this out. Two tables side by side. You've got John Schmidt and Jason Shaw playing speed straight pool on both tables. Okay. But they start off with like 30 balls on the table. And then every time you've got every time somebody pockets 15 balls. You, they they take fifteen balls and dump them on the other guy's table like it's like speed Tetris, you know, where what what you clear <laughs> off your table gets dumped on the other guy's table randomly, okay. And every time you clear a rack, now I'm just telling you, I've got this mapped out. It would take two people with the ball to be the ball dumpers, and then one guy to kind of ref. And I'm telling you, I think that it would be really fun to see who could get to the point where like the other person's table is just you can't even move around anymore, and eventually just <sighs> who that I would watch. Would you guys watch that? Well, what's that no. rack they have, Nate, with 60 balls racked in it or whatever it is? Yeah. Oh, yeah that crazy thing. <laughs> I just love it to see so it, man. So silly. Was it the, 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 what was the guy, the Blair Thien, I think it was his, his idea was the pool poker and pain. You play a set of, <laughs> you play a set of pool, you play a set of poker, and then if it goes hill, hill, you box it out to see who wins. <laughs> oh, <There you> go. <laughs> well. They better hope me they can either beat me at the poker or the pool because uh, they're not going to like what happens. <laughs> they don't want oh, this yeah. Don't make me. All right. All right. Let's move on to the uh, the Mucci Classic. We'll just talk about this very briefly before. Yes, the, we uh, should talk about open. it. Uh, we got Aloysius Yap beating uh, in the 10 ball, I should say. The Aloysius Yap beats Victor Zelinski in the finals. Uh, Mika Eminen, Dennis Graba get uh, third, fourth. Senjin Pelovanovic, uh, Yanni Yuski, uh, P.S. Labudis, and Max Lechner get fifth through eighth. So talk about a, a pretty stacked field for a small little town in Florida. Pretty yeah, impressive about, stuff. You get about, that 10, quality. about 10, 15 minutes from where I live. Um, mm. Yap, Yap double-dipped the tournament, too. He won the 10-ball on the nine-footer, won the bar table uh, event as well, undefeated in both. So, wow. yeah, it's kind of gross. I mean... He must have cleared like twenty grand, I think, for this weekend just from from that because there was Calcutta's. Him. There was Calcutta's in both events too, and I think the ten ball was like ten thousand added. So well, it's actually perfect that you're here for this because I want to talk about the Calcutta really quickly before you move on. Mm -hmm. Is it a normal thing in Florida for the uh, promoters to take ten percent of the Calcutta in Florida? Um, it depends. Uh, uh, the majority of them do. 
the, the majority of them will take 10%. I've not gone to certain events when, yeah, I've not gone to certain events when they, when they said that they do that just to kind of like, you know, whatever. I don't know. It's not, it's not, it's not my call. I think it's kind of a dumb thing to do that. Uh, personally, like it's people's money. I think they take the 10% and, and donate it to charity if I'm not mistaken. So it's not something that the promoters keep, but, um, yeah, it's just silly. Demetrius, but yeah, is that still, thing in Minnesota? I mean, there's I've seen tournaments. I, it's not standard up here. It's 40, 30, 20, 10 is pretty standard. Uh, 100% payout is pretty standard. But uh, you know, listen, if if they if they did it, as long as they announce it ahead of time, um, I don't have a problem with it. Uh, I think it'll affect my bidding. It might affect participation. Whether or not it's you know, listen, the Calcutta is voluntary. Nobody's forcing you to do anything. Right. So if you don't yeah. like it, don't bid on the players. And then if enough players don't bid, to where they're like, well, we're we're not really. This is killing our action. We don't want to do it. I mean, like, okay, I'll look at it this way. You don't get mad if they don't run a Calcutta. So it's like if they want to run a Calcutta that you don't want to participate in, it's just look at it like it's no Calcutta then. And then if, if enough people do that, that the tournament directors like this isn't really working. We'd rather just not have a Calcutta or we'd add all the money. I mean, it's you have a choice. They have a choice. There's no, nothing they're obligated to do. I, I think that tournament directors in general, if there's something that they can do that's transparent where they can help make a little money to do a hard job, I'm okay with that. Um, so I don't really have a huge, like I don't have any ethical or moral problems with it. Um, it might affect my bidding a little bit in certain spots, but if they want, it's just like poker rooms do a rig. I don't really care. Right. I I am all about the tournament directors getting paid more. I think that there should be a minimum of a five dollar administration fee to every every tournament that's ran, and that doesn't go back to the tournament. That doesn't go to the bar. That doesn't go to anyone. That goes to the tournament director. I think I think if you're going and playing paying forty dollars for an entry fee, you can pay five dollars to make that tournament happened. Now you run into the issues of should tournament directors be playing in their own events. I have I do I will say I have a big problem. There's a couple places in Wisconsin where they charge an administration fee and then the the promoters play in the event and then you end up actually helping the event because they know that you can do it. And then so basically you're paying for somebody else to do the event that you're doing. I I but that's neither here nor there. I, I think it should be you should absolutely have to pay the tournament director to run some events if, if nothing else buy him buy him lunch if you're not going to do it like a tournament director should be showing up and being don't be a net taken care of like if, if you don't take care of your tournament director whether it's be administration fees or buying them lunch every single time like especially if you're cashing out of the place regularly i think yeah that's just torture <laughs> tournament it's also like tournament directors will, will burn out over after like three or four years and not want to keep running regional if they make it that long that's it's, a long time too, it's too much of a hassle you know what i mean and you're really you know trying to cater to everybody and everybody has a complaint and you know it's kind of a thankless job but yeah um, when we ran uh the state uh, bcapl tournament uh here in wisconsin we al always had an administration fee uh along with the entry fee and with well the 1200 players say for instance in the tournament paying that administration fee of five dollars uh that adds up to five grand five six grand every year and we would give a percentage of that to the tournament director it was right around 20 percent so uh for his to, just to pay him and then we would uh uh use some of that money to pay the refs with and some other expenses and and around uh 25 percent of it about a quarter of it we put back into the prize fund uh, anything that we didn't need 
for administration of the tournament and running of the right. tournament. That and, was and if you're, and if you're uh, Timmy uh, Bly makes a good point. Like if you're snapping off a tournament, you know, then you probably should, you know, drop off a little jelly to the, um, to the tournament director as like a courtesy, as a thank you for, you know, running the event and that kind you of stuff. You do it see goes. that with Calcutta money once in a while, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whoever wins that or comes in first. Second. I've seen fourth place finishers in the Calcutta give tournament director money. Yeah. Hand of cash. Well, and um, I agree. You know, I think that, uh, but I just wanted to answer one question too. Somebody was asking about uh, Fedor's dominance and if he's going to be able to maintain it like Shane did for 15 years. I just wanted to interject. My, my thought on that is, is that um, Shane, when Shane was dominant, the second, you know, his opponents were like Neil Spann, Ralph Suquet, Darren Appleton, Mika Eminen, Corey Duell. I Now, you know, Fedor is trying to dominate and he's got Filler, Albin, Shaw, you know, Elusius, yeah, but, you know, Dennis Arcolo, oh, I mean, Shane, yeah, but I, I honestly don't. Okay, anyway, so so the point is, is that I think that the, the talent has gotten so strong and so deep that, like, you've got, like, five, six, seven guys that could all be, you know, Alvin Ocean, did I say Alvin? Anyway, you got five, six guys that are all, like, basically they are they would be the best in the world if it wasn't for Fedor doing what he's doing so it's like i just don't think it's going to be possible for anybody to maintain a dominant edge for as long as it happened in the 80s 90s or even 10 years ago yeah. i agree with that yeah well, i think well, i think if anything we'll just see the standard of play continue to average up right like yeah, the amount so. Like the quality of play it takes to win, you might just see more guys average up into that tier of people that are legitimate yeah. threats to win a tournament. And, you know, the results will take care of themselves. But yeah, I mean we're gonna we're gonna be talking about A fifty Fargo really soon. Like, you know. About the I, last five years, you have seen those numbers sure. gradually come up yeah. across the I board. Mean, a couple of years ago, eight twenty something Fargo was like, wow, and now there's like you know, six, seven, eight guys that are there. There you go. Three guys in in eight thirty. But there's so. there, the question though. Do we think that? And I don't, I don't know that we want to get down this too far. But like, I'm not convinced that Fargo rates are static. I think that Fargo rates are about measuring the differences yeah. in performance between groups of players, and that an eight twenty right. today might not be the same as an eight twenty when Fargo first came out. Like, I don't know right. if talent's actually gotten that much stronger, or if it's just we've gotten more data and there's been a more accurate spread established. I don't know. Yeah. That's a good yeah. point. Damn yeah, well, definitely, yeah, definitely yeah. a volume of data is what is what's going to make it, you know, increasingly more effective. Market. I mean, yeah, I think they talk about like Fargo creep or something. I don't know, but we'll find out. We'll find out over the years. So, at the end of the day, if you restarted the Elo ranking system, the the Fargo rate system, and you did it in two neighboring cities, right? And let's say you did it in Minneapolis and you did it in Madison, Wisconsin, right? We're going to have our eight fifties, just like you're going to have your eight fifties or whatever it's going to end up being. But that doesn't mean that your 850 is the same as our 850, right? I mean, th that's like a small, like, Petri dish of, like, as you move things around and as things meld together, it changes everything else along the way, right? So they say, you know, th there's, like, 2 million pieces of data into Fargo, right? As, as far as, like, data sets goes, that's really, really, really tiny. It's That's still really small. And if you ask Mike Page how many you'd want to have it, to make things, like, close to accurate you're, we're talking into like the billions so we're still they we're have, still getting these who do you think <laughs> that it would be fun to have mike and steve the guys that do fargo rate on the podcast would anybody like that in the audience because uh we, you know we've had mike on in the past way back in the day though because i think it'd be interesting i think uh 
Anyway, I think that the, the point is, is that yes, more data is always better, but but they're good enough with stats to understand the size of their data set and then to what degree of variance you can use that reliably. I mean, they're not, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've got a chance. I know Mike well, and I, I know Steve well, and I've, I, you know, I've barely, like, I've gotten to talk to them at depth about this anyway. I don't know, you know, and uh, they, they really are, when it comes to statistics and numbers, they really understand this stuff. And, um, and so they can, they're not going to make any, they're not going to make any claims that they can't support with the tools and that they have with the, you know, with all these problems of like isolated pockets or small sample sizes or players that don't travel or people with the same names or people sandbagging, like they have so much, they, they understand all these issues. They live, breathe and sleep it and they have solutions and explanations and they know it's not perfect, but they can tell you to the degree of error that it's not perfect. So, I mean, these guys are pretty good at what they do. Yeah. It's better than the other systems we have, isn't it? Yeah, that's. I was gonna say that's the other reason to jelly roll your tournament director is so that your handicap doesn't go up after you heist a thing. Oh. I, I'm just saying, you, know? <laughs> you gotta you gotta grease the wheel, man. Yeah. This ain't yeah, the old days luck. where you just show up and win every week. <laughs> grease the wheel. Grease the wheel. All right, <laughs> let's uh, let's close out this last tournament here. That's the same tournament, uh, the third annual Muchi Classic. Uh, Aloysius, yep, like you said, already cleaned them out. Wins the ball, A side and the B, or, uh, the nine ball and the ten ball, not losing a match on either side. Max Lechner gets second. Pius Labudis and BJ Ushery get uh, third, fourth. Yeah. Aleska Pokel, Pokel, yeah. And Conrad Yushchishin. I can do that yeah. one better than Alexa. Right. That's, that's weird. Uh, Alex Kazakis and Yanni Yuski getting seventh, eighth. Kind of a pretty cool tournament for P.S. Labudis. Wins his first match and then loses his second match and then wins one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten matches in a row to get back to third. That's yeah. Everybody was gapping the ring ball too in that in that tournament um, on the bar table side. Apparently, somebody figured out that they don't care what you do with the rack and the you know the balls aren't brand new, perfect, clean balls. So some racks are difficult to like even with the Accurac to get them all frozen and touched up and get them opening repeatedly the same way. So to shortcut that process, they would gap the wing ball and break from the middle and slam break it and draw the, you know, bring the cue ball. I mean the, the one ball up towards the corner and then whatever happened, you know, they'd probably get a shot. So, uh, I mean, a lot of them were doing that. So it was kind of, um, kind of gross actually to watch because <laughs> if the balls are all touching you're never supposed to make the wing ball from that spot but you know what when you have i just i can't help myself i was just telling you, i'm just biting my tongue biting my tongue and i can't help myself the, yeah when there's certain people that do certain things that are you know okay like when you're watching a horror movie and for a while you're like getting nervous because you're like you don't want you're, you're identifying with the character and you don't want anything bad to happen and when they walk into a dark room you're you're tense but then at some point they do something so stupid that something switches and you start wanting them to get killed. You know what I mean? Like, oh, well, we're gonna go split up and go into the forest. Like, really, we're gonna I'm split gonna go up alone and go over the here in the dark. Yeah, I'm gonna. We can cover more ground if I go by myself into the attic, right? Like, and you know what? Why don't I leave? And it's like at some point you're just like, well, now I hope you die. Well, that's how I feel about watching these tournament directors with these. They're gonna invite international level players onto a goddamn seven foot table, and then you're gonna not monitor the break rules, and then it's like, <laughs> well, now I hope you're a vet. I mean, like, I hope, I hope this is terrible, pool, because I hope that it just comes down to a complete whoever gas the rack best, ha ha ha, gets the money because, really it and, it's, and it's and it's torturous for anybody to watch because they spend yeah. ten minutes racking and then make a dead ball and run the same pattern again and again and you know con their way into the finals and ha ha ha. I hope that's what you get because you you made it that way. 
BJ Usri uh, didn't do that the whole tournament and really, I mean, played, had to play jam up through crappy racks and like balls that were sagging and like had to really fight and not move his opponents and beat like a bunch of top players on the way there. He won that event last year, um, kind of doing, you know, that he made both finals, I think, last year. Um, played stout pool, played really, really good. And, uh, you know, it's just tough to fade, you know, having to, to outrun a guy who's gapping the wing ball every single time. Set over set over set over set. And you're playing guys that are 800 Fargos, you know, over and over and over and over again. So it was kind of rough. Um, it caught me by surprise because I, I think I played Aloysius the third round or something like that on the winner's side. And he was gapping the wing ball on me. And I'm like, what the? What the? The other two, the, the match that I played before that, the table racked great, racked perfect. So I didn't need to do that. I just broke from the rail. And that's how I, I broke because I have that break dialed in. And I, I beat my guy like nine to one and broke like almost perfect. It was one rack. I didn't get shape on the one, the very last break. But then against uh, Aloysius, that wasn't working. I, the balls wouldn't touch up, and I, I couldn't get the balls to spread the right way. And then I saw him gapping the one, and I'm like, oh, my God, here we go. Um, so that was kind of annoying. But <laughs> all that aside, that I, and then I start looking around. I see, like, <laughs> like Jesus Atencio is doing it, and then all the Europeans are doing it, and then Aloysius is doing it. Like, this becomes, like, the, the meta now under this, you know, Wild Wild West format where the balls aren't all perfect. And then you got to like, you know, you want to pr pr protect yourself by making sure you make the wing ball. Everybody was gapping the wing ball. It's kind of gross. Well, let, well me, let me ask except, this, Raymond. Except me and except a couple other people. But yeah. So, so, <laughs> let, me, so let me ask you this question, Raymond, because oh. well, let's be realistic here. You're, you're not you're not like one of these world class players that we're talking about. Right. So if by not doing what they're doing, not only are you giving up a you know, a bit of an edge on the table. You're giving up an edge on the racking too. Why wouldn't mm. you start gapping the balls? Is, is it strictly as uh, a bit of, you know, this is my morality. I've just never, I've just never done it. So I'm not in stroke do, doing that. And I don't want to learn on the fly. You know what I mean? Like I, I know what it looks like when the, when the wing ball is not touching, but then you gotta, you know, hit the stroke and you gotta like, you know what I mean? So it's like, it, it is what it is. You know what I mean? And it's alternate break. And I don't know. It's just uh, it's like a little bit of a of a gray area. At that point, it's like okay, if we're just gonna rack however we want to rack and just exemplify rack break knowledge, that's cool. Whatever we can do that, it's not a big deal. Um, but you know, ideally, you have balls that are all the same size, everything's perfect, and you can you know, they want to gap the wing ball. Sure, I think that's fine. Go ahead. Then I'll I'll break from the corner, and I you know we'll see whose whose break is better. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you give yourself a, a disadvantage for sure. Which is why I mentioned BJ because BJ got to the semifinals or whatever, not gapping the wing ball, and just you know carried the the handicap of doing that and did well. So, but sure. I also will say something, um, you know, not to be negative or anything, but I've I traveled to a bunch of tournaments this past month or so, and I've seen a lot of players uh, kind of behave in a way that's like. I would I would call immature and I would call childish and these are players that travel the world and have sponsors and have all this stuff and they've are kind of players played, that were coaches pick on the US Moscone never mind sorry uh, uh, you're, I'm talking about European players the oh. vast majority of them that I would not have expected to really? have I've, I think I could have made a compilation video of how many shafts were banged on tables over this weekend 
and done like a this 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 was brought to you by quality control department showing the robust <laughs> uh build construction quality of our you know equipment and it's like i think it's become almost like a cultural thing that's become accepted amongst them and nobody amongst their little crew of people that travel around the world they all kind of do it and it becomes like a normative behavior and it's almost like it's like oh this is like what good players too when we get frustrated we show our frustration by smacking our cue or throwing our cue down against the wall or behaving like a nine-year-old if i if i had a nine-year-old son behave that way i'd smack him upside his head uh forfeit his match take his cues and take him home so you can't play for a month <laughs> you know what I mean? When I, I, I'll tell you what, I have a, I had a great experience growing up when I was a little kid, when I was young, uh, first getting good. I was taking lessons from John DeToro and John had finished giving me lessons and then we would play cheap gambling sets, races to five for 20. But we had a stipulation when we would play that was, uh, he would call it mum pool, right? Mum pool means you can't make a sound, you can't verbalize a frustration, you can't bang your cue on the table, all these little things that people do to show emotion. Anytime that you audibly make a sound or, or say something that happened during a set that was displeasing to you, it would cost you $5. Now, I would Ooh. never, I would never, I never gave John a dollar in that process, right? But he was torturing me, torturing me. And I had to sit, if you could compare what it looked like inside my, my spirit, you know what I mean, in my mind versus what was happening on the table, you would never know. But the blessing I got from that, that, that learning experience was that John equipped me to compete and to be ready to sit in a chair and take whatever came and never exemplify the negative attributes that I've been seeing from a lot of the top professionals. So now when I view these guys, I don't view them as champions anymore. I view them as good players. The champions are the ones that can sit in a chair, take it, shake your hand, put their cue away, and move on to the next match. Guys like Fedder, guys like Chang Jin Lin, Guys that are like the Coe brothers, all three of them are very humble and very, uh, very stoic and they never give away emotion, you know, but there's a whole second tier guys that I think are now just a bunch of pretenders. They're skilled ball pocketers. They're great ball runners. They're good competition pool players, but I've seen the extent at which their mental toughness lasts, their emotional uh, uh, wherewithal, where it where it folds and where it breaks. And I know that they have a breaking point because they're willing to share that breaking point with the world when they behave like kids, when they're getting beat by somebody who they don't know, they somehow feel entitled to the fact that they are exempt from getting beat. There's nobody in the world who's exempt from getting beat. You, you dishonor yourself and the sport when you behave that way and you act like you are exempt from getting tortured. There are a lot of players around the world that if you give them a set, and they play their full game, they're going to torture you. Now, what you have is the confidence and the ability to travel around the world and iterate your game over and over and over again. So you have, you know, you go into a match expecting to win all the time. But now when somebody challenges your expectations, how do you handle that as a competitor, as a pool player, real champions, the guys that I look at as the apex, like, like the real A1 gangsters. Like you're you're climbing the little totem pole in Mortal Kombat. You know what I mean? You're working your way up to the top and you're getting to Goro and Shang Tsung. And like, these are the guys who are the final bosses. Like those guys have transcended all this other crap, but they don't show that emotion. They don't give that to you. They're not going to hand over that ammunition. But some of these guys, 800 Fargos, I mean, I've seen six, seven, eight of them smack their cue around. And it's almost like a shark technique too, especially if it's like lower level guys 
who are really playing at the top of their game to keep up or have a slight advantage. You know what I mean? Those guys, you know, every once in a while, that stuff will unsettle them. You know what I mean? And it gives them just enough of an advantage to get them dissuade from their game so they can get in. So being able to manage yourself when you see that is important. So advice to players that are coming up and going out, you're going to see that. Unfortunately, you're going to see that amongst those guys. But to me, I think it's important if you're a professional who's traveling the world and your name is going on flyers and you're playing in regional tournaments and you're going to be a draw, you have a responsibility to perform and behave like a professional, not a child, especially if there's going to be young kids or league players who are like, oh, man, this top player is going to be at the pool room. I'm going to go watch them. And they happen to come across and see you behave like 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 an amateur, really. Like this is stuff that you would maybe expect at an APA, you know, cities match or something. Somebody getting upset and banging their cue or acting like a jerk. Like this is not acceptable. So I, I almost had word. I almost went up to and talked to a couple. I'm like, hey, don't come to my pool room and act like this. You know what I mean? Because maybe <laughs> this is this is okay in your culture. You know what I mean? Amongst you guys, right? You guys are pros. You guys travel the world and you guys do this, but. This is not culturally acceptable and like i think the standard of how we conduct ourselves as professionals needs to be way higher and and you play great but behaving this way is, is not cool so you know just something to think about i, I don't have to name names i don't want to name names i'm not here to, to do that but it's just like the things that we do and we like you probably wouldn't do that if like the matchroom cameras were on you you know what i mean like you'd probably try and be on your best behavior so well, Raymond, I'm gonna, yeah, I want to jump in. So there's always is. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, so first of all, I, the, the, my pet peeve is the slow concession. You know, somebody misses a ball and they sit there with their cue, like how that not go in and they sit there for like 10 seconds while you're trying right, to get to the right. table. I think it's tacky and I don't like that behavior. Uh, personally, I think that I'm a Nick Varder kind of guy where he looked at any kind of stuff like that as a sign of weakness and he right. didn't want to ever give his opponent any fuel. So I agree in terms of your opinion of how you conduct yourself, I agree. And I agree with that standard for my own personal conduct. The two questions we have are that's at what point is it our opinion? And when do we get to say, we get to determine what set of cultural standards other people have to adhere to. The other part is it, it, we can have our own personal belief that I don't want to show a bunch of weakness and emotion. Um, and I think that's advantageous, but the proofs in the pudding. And when it comes to poker, there's people that are very serious. There's also people that are very emotional, uh, same with pool. And, and so I can't, I look at JL Chang and, and, and Ralph Suke, and I look at guys like this that were at the top of pool and say, that's how I like it. But then we've also got guys like Earl that got to the top of pool that you it's. So my, my point is we have our opinion of how we want to conduct ourselves and how we like to approach the game. And I agree. I agree with your set of, standards for yourself and i would encourage young players to follow that lead that's the way i like it but i don't know that we get to dictate how what the universal set of standards should be and i'm not sure there's a ton of evidence that it's as damaging to their performance as you're making it sound because i've just i've seen a lot of styles work so i'm with you on your preference but i think at yeah, the end I mean, of the day we, it's we a have preference pat like we have pat McEnroe and people that you know are out and just smashing their, their rackets and uh, but like yeah, it might it might work for them, you know what I mean. But I've just seen it so frequently amongst a certain group of of players that travel together, that it's almost like it's becoming like the like the cultural normative. Like it's like they're reinforcing the behavior because they're the good players, and so they're doing this, so they get to dictate how they behave. 
And this is just like a call like, hey, you know, other people, you might think it looks cool for you to like smash your, your cue every time you miss a ball, but it doesn't look good. You know what I mean? Yeah, it really doesn't that. look good. Yeah, Basically, it looks like we get our vote. We have a podcast. We have yeah. our preference. And we're saying, hey, right. just if you can we, you play know, great either way. Like you can play on tilt and still come with it and play great, whatever. But like, you know, do we really want to see you smashing your cue left and right every time you miss a ball? Like get over yourself. You know, are you that important? Uh, I'll tell are you somebody you who does that, want it. That, to see it. You know, the pool. Cue what was that name? The pool cue companies want to see it. They, yeah, they, yeah, sell yeah, a, yeah. they sell a new pool cue every time someone does that. Oh, it's good. It's I'll tell you what, those carbon fiber shafts hold up. I'll tell you, those carbon <laughs> fiber shafts, they really hold up good. I promise. Hey, you. I have a question for uh, the teachers here. Now, Nate, you do some teaching on the side uh, with some uh, entry level players and things like that. And, and Demetrius, of course, you do it for a living. Uh, teach pool. Uh, I, I got a question for both of you guys. Uh, is there any one particular thing that stands out in your minds that you have personally learned about the game, about pool, by teaching the game uh, to other people? And Demetrius, go ahead. Go first on that. I, it's really, really hard to know because I know how I see the game now. And I know that conceptually there's, there's certain things that I've had to break down and articulate. And there's certainly things I understand about how I play cognitively that I could not have, like I couldn't have told you why I did some of the stuff I did or how I did some of the stuff I did. Um, but then the question is going back five years is, did I, did I still play the way I played? And now I'm just finding words for how I played or as I found words for how I play, has that led to incremental fine tunes on my decision-making and strategizing and things in execution. And, you know, it's, really hard to know because what I can't do is go back and compare and remember how I viewed the game in five years ago. I mean, I can watch a little bit that's on, on YouTube and tape and everything, but it's really hard to, it's really hard to know. It's like trying to remember how the game looked to you when you were 15 or something. It's like, so in the end, I can only go off of um, my, I can only go off my gut. And my gut is, is that I think that it is, I think that I've had some cognitive breakthroughs and understandings about exactly how I play the game that have have led me to doing what I I think that it's almost like a good pre-shot routine it's like it's not that it's not that when you were playing in stroke you know before you had a real consistent pre-shot routine it doesn't mean you didn't hit that stroke it's so it's it's just that you're doing the things you did when you're playing well more often you know so it's like I'm not I'm not doing anything I didn't do before when I was playing well but I'm understanding the things that I did that I do when I'm playing well and I'm making a point of doing them more often so I think right. that I I'm probably playing sharp and there have been some cognitive breakthroughs that have led me to to probably play correctly a little bit more often and probably trend the right way but I'd say it's a pretty small thing I it's not something where I started teaching and all of a sudden you know I don't miss anymore I mean it's you know Okay, so it's just a, it's an overall awareness, more of an awareness of what's going on. Yeah, so I think it's a, a, a nudge, not a it's it's a small, small fine tune, not a big lever. How about you, Nate? Because you haven't been doing it as long as Demetrius has, or as well, intense. I think the um, I think that there's a lot of there's there's a lot of different levels to learning, right? Um, being able to do something does not mean that you fundamentally understand what's happening. And I think if you take a lot of like lower level, let's say four twenty to four forty Fargo players and you you set up a shot and you say hit a stop shot here for the most part uh, many of them will know how to do that can they do it consistently well, maybe not but they know fundamentally how to do it but if you ask them to understand if, if you ask them how to explain to you what a stop shot is very very often you'll end up having them answer like well that's when you hit a little bit under the center of the cue ball 
and when the object or when you get to the object ball, the cue ball stops. Cause that's like that, that's kind of like that, that level of understanding that, 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 that they understand it as, but if you ask them to explain fundamentally what's actually happening with the cue ball and why it's not um, continuously rolling through or, you know, back from the object ball, that's where the kind of the, the knowledge, the understanding breaks down to where you can, you can see it happen. You know what it's, what it's doing, but you don't really understand fundamentally how it's happening. Um, you know, even if you're teaching the game, I think there's a lot of more complex uh, things that uh, happen that, you know, you're trying to express them to your students through, you know, examples. And this is why this is going on. And as you, every time that you do that, you get a little bit better at understanding kind of what's happening and how to explain it in a more layman kind of way. And I think that's what makes Jeremy Jones like so special at what he does is like he understands a game so deeply, but he also yeah. is able to express it so simply that you can, you can take these complex ideas where you're not talking about a stop shot. You're talking about, you know, a drag draw shot that you're trying to come off of two cushions on to, to, to change the angle off of the draw stroke so that you can, you He's, he's able to explain it just so much more differently <laughs> and so much easily. Uh, and I think, um, I think really what I, I don't know how much I knew before I started teaching because it's, it gets into that fuzzy range where, well, did I really know what this was or did I just kind of know how to do it? And I didn't really know fundamentally what was going on. And as you're explaining things and you're learning as you know, you're going through the journey yourself, you, you start putting to words all of these fundamental understandings that your body knows how to do, but your mind doesn't know why it works that way. If that and, makes and, sense. and the only danger too, that I want to argue the flip side for one second, because a lot of people would overlook this. They'd be like, well, I'm getting, my understanding is getting better. Therefore I must be improving. The thing is sometimes it works against you. You start realizing how complex and difficult this game is. And you start looking at all your students who struggle to do all these things. And you start thinking about all these things. And then it's like, so if somebody was like, well, I want to get better. If they had the choice of either try to teach it, explain it to weaker players, watch players struggle, try to find words and understandings to explain all this stuff. Or would you be better off surrounding yourself in a room full of people that are just like, I don't know, you just put them in the hole, boom, boom, boom. Like, honestly, that's, that's better. I mean, uh, so I, I'm not saying my understanding of pool hasn't evolved, but in terms of like bottom line improvement, you know, keep it simple. Just shoot them in the hole, man. And what you're talking about right there basically is the, the exact thesis to inner game of tennis. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting balance, which is what, what makes pool such a great game. Um, you know, it's got, it's got a lot of analytical um, strategy to it, you know, from tactics and strategy and mental game and all this, but it's also, you know, you've got to just get up and hit balls in too. And so it's got this, it's not chess, you know, you can't live in your head. You've got to, you've got to connect the two and uh, left brain, right brain. Actually, I spent the U.S. Open with Danny Golson and he was telling me, I don't want to like get too deep into it. It's not my story to tell, but he was talking about sinking the left and right side of the brain and different exercises you could do to try to, it's very strange, but, um, but yeah, the point is it's a complicated game and, and uh, you can definitely overcomplicate it. So. Well, that, okay. that's one of the majesties of pool is it can be it can be exactly as infinitely complex as you want it to be, but it could also be the simplest game you've ever came across in your life. Hit ball and hole, or you know you can go through the physics of why everything actually breaks down the way that it does, and <laughs> you can actually describe everything that's going on using your physics and mathematics, and or you could just simply go up to the table and me ball put hole go. <laughs> <laughs> It could be as in infinitely complex or as simple as you want it to be. Yeah. Well, thanks, you guys. That, that was enlightening. And I guess right. with that, that's probably a good place to, to wrap up, huh? Yeah.
Good. All right. Well, what's, 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 what do we thanks, have what do we, oh yeah, we got the Puerto Rico. What you've been watching the Puerto Rico Open? Yeah, what's what's been going on? Just, no, just the early rounds, I guess. I mean, the venue looks beautiful. The venue looks yeah. really, really nice. Um, I'm kind of like bummed that I uh, didn't have enough vacation time to go. <laughs> but uh -huh. yeah, it looks it looks really great. It looks really, really great. And there's the Junior yeah. International Championships kicking off as well. But guys, I yeah. I do have to run, so I'm gonna bow out. But I will uh, see you again. See you, Demi. See you, yeah. Thank oh, you. Thanks for the comments, buddy. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, until next week. See you guys. Raymond, take care. Bye-bye.